The Spectator is searching for the UK's brightest entrepreneurs to enter the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, in partnership with Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. If you have a business that disrupts an existing market, a smart new way of doing things, or something that has incredible social impact, then apply by the 9th of July at spectator.co.uk slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, is uncertainty crippling the country's cultural life? Plus, what will Europe look like after Merkel? And finally, has the pandemic changed the arguments for urban versus rural living? First up, July 19th is approaching but it is still unclear precisely what life after Freedom Day will look like. Lloyd Evans, the Spectator's sketch writer and theatre critic, argues in this week's cover piece that anything other than an abolition of all COVID restrictions would be a calamity for Britain's live events industry. He joins me now, along with the playwright, James Graham. Lloyd, Wimbledon's back. The Euros, so far, they've they've been a success, and many theatres are cautiously opening up their doors as well. So for many, it looks like Britain's cultural and sporting life has returned. But in your article, you say that the government is using uh, these big approved events as show ponies to convince us that we're back to normal. Can you explain what you mean by this for our listeners? Uh, yes, the, uh, these events are actually part of an experiment, a scientific experiment, which the government... Uh, is mounting. It began in about April or May, and the idea was to see if it was safe for people to gather in large numbers, uh, unmasked and without social distancing. There were events like the Brit Awards in London and uh, the World Snooker Championship in uh, the Sheffield Crucible Theatre. And uh, Wimbledon is also part of this uh, experiment. Uh, So it looks as if it's a, a normal Uh, season of sporting and cultural events. But really, what's going on is that uh, the people at the events are being tested to see if the disease is still transmissible. And the results that the uh, government has seen seem to suggest that it is really very safe now for people to mingle and gather in large numbers. Um, But they were very coy about releasing the results. And initially, they blocked uh, the results of the first phase of the experiment. And um, it was only when <clears throat> some uh, pressure was applied by Cameron McIntosh and Peter Gabriel and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who went to law to force the publication of these uh, results, that the government reluctantly released the data on June the 25th. And this showed that there was really almost zero risk of people gathering at large events. At the Brit Awards, for example, attended by over 3,000 people, there were no cases of COVID. And at the World Snooker Championship, attended by 10,000 people over 17 days, I think there were less than 12 cases. This is not people being ill. This is people just registering the infection. So it looks as if everything is safe. And one of the reasons the government is reluctant to release this information, or was reluctant to release the information, is because it suggests that really we should have opened up on 
June the 21st. James, what do you make of the government's event research programme and, and their coyness, as, uh, as Lloyd has put it? Yeah, I can't explain that either. I mean, as, as Lloyd said, the news and the findings in that report is incredibly positive uh, and it should have been actually a cause for great celebration. I was grateful that the government launched that scheme. It, wasn't a, it was a scheme intended to test uh, plays, ballets, concerts, football um, matches as to whether or not they are safe. And it's been proven that they are incredibly safe, especially when you compare it to other semi or nearly fully open sectors like hospitality and, and retail. The safety of going to watch a play whereby uh, even you know, if you stagger your entrance times so there's no pinch points in the lobby, if you have an app on your phone now so that you can order, a, it's very sophisticated. I actually hope this is one of the things that they keep so you can order a beer straight to your seat. Uh, obviously, unlike a bar or a pub where people are crossing over each other continually, and most people in the theatres tend to face the same way. So it's extraordinarily safe. And the figures that Lloyd said are, are a shock even, even to me. 58,000 people and only 28 examples of transmission. So this is remarkable. So I, I cannot understand uh, why the government wouldn't want to promote and champion that, except, I don't know, as Lloyd said, this is meant to be a science experiment. It looks, uh, the science looks suspiciously like they're, they're opening up the most popular events, um, and the most eye-catching headline events, possibly particularly for what they wrongly, in my view, imagine as more working class conservative voters who, of course, couldn't possibly like a play or couldn't possibly like a musical. They only like sport and they only like pubs. I think all of that is nonsense. And, you know, theatre, the theatre industry has been so, so decimated in the past 16 months, like a lot of industries, of course. But uh, theatre survives and is only works uh, based on physical proximity and it's the one thing we haven't been able to do since March of last year so it really is we are on the absolute cliff edge now of, of sustaining this industry or not and the extension to June the 19th was impossibly devastating particularly for the commercial sector. Well, Lloyd if we assume the best case scenario and there's no restrict there are no restrictions at all after July 19th is the fear that some of, some of these restrictions could return let's say uh, face masks in the winter. Is that uncertainty enough to do great long-term damage, do you think, to, to live events? Uh, yes, I think it is. And I mean, we're facing two crises at the, uh, at the same time. One is the unexpected last-minute extension of the lockdown to July the 19th, which has caused the cancellation of thousands of um, music gigs and also has caused the cancellation of the WOMAD festival for the second year in a row. And the organisers of that festival, like a lot of other events, said that there'd been zero contact or zero support from the government. Uh, so they were forced to, to close that. Um, and in the future, it's just going to be very difficult to organise uh, any kind of large event. And it was very worrying, actually, yesterday in Prime Minister's questions when uh, Boris said he had a devout hope that the restrictions will be lifted on July the 19th. Well, hope is what you have um, when you're actually quite depressed and miserable. What we want is optimism and clarity and certainty. And I can see, I mean, a problem in the, in the long-term future is that people will uh, shy away from backing large theatrical events. I mean, a big musical with say um, 20 actors on stage and 30 musicians in the pit, which costs millions to uh, produce and to stage, needs a lot of investors. And these people are going to think twice about uh, uh, investing in a big show like that when they know that at a moment's notice, the government can just 
come up with some new reason to impose these restrictions. And unfortunately, the entire population has now been effectively groomed to expect them and to comply with them. And that is really, really worrying. It's really worrying. And another interesting and, 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 and sort of disastrous aspect of it is that the, the decision-making center appears to be quite weak. So if you have access, you can get your voice heard, you can get your show on. Um, if you don't, uh, then you can't. And the tentacles of government seem to have reached out to a whole new uh, phalanx of um, security guards and bag checkers and people who uh, have, seem authorized or feel authorized to make quite intrusive actions while you get into uh, the theater. I, I went to um, East Berlin in the days of the Cold War and it was easier to get through Checkpoint Charlie than it was to get into the National Theater two nights ago. So, you know, this is a, a long-term worry, I think. And, and the danger is that people will lose the habit of going to the theatre and going to live events. That's another worry. Well, you mentioned the need for optimism there, Lloyd. And, and James, you, you wrote last year that after the pandemic passes, we have a historic opportunity to do something radical and ambitious that could explode the barriers faced by so many people and communities in accessing culture and making art. But with all the financial costs, delays, cancellations, and, and, and everything that British theatre has suffered in the last year. Are you still this optimistic now? I know, just listening back to that, it sounds faintly naive, to be honest, where I, where I currently feel. But um, no, I still do believe that. I have to believe that because I think, uh, you know, history has proven that sometimes it takes these great, these great moments of reset to try and improve something. And I think what I meant primarily is that we have to be really honest. I mean, I'm such an advocate for the arts of the theatre and the power of theatre. I come from a, a relatively working class background in a former Red Wall town. And so I don't feel like that's just coming from the mouth of a metropolitan elite who thinks that all art is only consumed by people in, in urban centres and is very middle class. I think it has real value on people's lives. It had real value on, on my life, my mental health, my happiness, uh, my ability to emotionally connect with people. And, you know, stories, music comedy has always done that but we have to be incredibly honest there is an inequality in cultural distribution and access in this country some people just don't get to go to the theatre because it's too far away because it's too expensive because they don't feel comfortable there because psychologically they don't feel like it just doesn't occur to them that maybe going to see a play uh, is something they could do on, on a Friday night because of because of it's not been part of their education or their lifestyle growing up these are all going to be this is all going to get worse, I think, in the in the initial um, case, because because, you know, outside of the arts, people might be poorer if they were on uh, from a lower socioeconomic background. There are there is there are venues that have, that have closed and some of that may affect more rural areas than it would the city centres. So it's not it even though I, I have to believe it, it's certainly not inevitable. And I think, you know, this is something I don't know if you heard this, Lloyd, but I, I heard that actually one of the arguments that George Osborne made to Rishi Sunak uh, when he was making the case for the Cultural Recovery Fund, which was, I have to say, a great thing for the government to do and the right thing for the government to do. That was about one point, uh, nearly £1.72 billion invested in the arts to get them through the dark times. One of the arguments he made was that this is a, this is a conservative thing, subsidising the arts uh, and, and getting access to culture spread evenly across the country and across classes is something that conservatives should champion and celebrate and not always leave it to the left to do. And I think Rishi Sunak heard that. So I guess what I would love is in this levelling up agenda that Boris Johnson has uh, and in his reimagining of what town and city centres could and should be as department stores close, 
the arts and entertainment and cinema and comedy clubs, I think, could be a vital part of that, that infrastructure, that civic infrastructure in towns. So I would, uh, I would absolutely love for that to be sort of integrated more into the government's thinking. I agree with that. And I'm sure that as um, more branches of John Lewis close down, they could reopen as uh, theatre venues. I'm sure that would uh, gain a sympathetic hearing in number 10. Finally, uh, James and, and Lloyd, I'll ask you both. What's the first show you're going to rush to see when theatres reopen at full capacity? For me, it will be, I would like to go and see Maggie and Ted again, which I saw uh, two nights ago. And it's a fa- fantastic set of theatrical monologues, and which instead of um, highlighting the uh, differences between them, shows how similar they were. And they're both from working class backgrounds. They both went to Oxford. They both changed their accents and they both became prime minister and they were quite good friends actually early on really fascinating show and very very funny and it was on at the Garrick and uh, apparently the Garrick are interested in extending it and it may go on tour as well and uh, that is a, a great show Maggie and Ted it's very good great show written by a guy called Michael McManus who was a he worked for Ted Heath and um he he kind of has the inside track on Ted's uh, difficult personality it's a great show Maggie and Ted yeah James I would see this is exactly why we need theatre because they, look look at what uh, Lloyd just described that you know the the uh, I, the power of I think locking people in a dark space for an hour and a half two hours is the absolute antithesis to social media where everything is either black and white and it's so reactive plays just a lot I think that the space the sacred space of a of a play or a theatre is that you can really delve into the nuance of something and explore something and suddenly people's this is too romantic of you. People don't quite leave their baggage at the door, but the extremes often, I think, drop away and you can become how we used to be, I think, which is more even-handed. So I uh, I would love to go see Maggie and Ted. I'm going to fly the flag for regional theatre, if that's OK. I'm a Nottingham boy, and the Nottingham Playhouse opens next week, I think, with a musical Piaf uh, about the singer, Edith Piaf, and you know everything that makes theatre so special. It's live, it's got music, it's got singing, it's got lights, it's got costumes, and it is a, a show for audiences outside of London, which I think we need more attention on these days. Lloyd and James, thank you very much indeed. Next up, Angela Merkel has dominated European politics for the last decade and a half. But as she steps down this year, what will her departure mean for the EU? Wolfgang Munchau, the director of Euro Intelligence, writes about the ramifications of Angela's exit in this week's magazine. He joins me now, along with Mary Dejewski, columnist for The Independent and a former correspondent for both Moscow and Paris. Wolfgang, you say in your article that Angela Merkel, who you describe as the most overrated political leader of our time, leaves behind her a split EU that is not just unled, but might now be unleadable. Why do you think that is? Well, when I say that she is the most overrated political leader, you know, I'm not even offending her here. I'm merely saying that she, uh, that people have have hailed her to be the leader of the Western world, which is completely nonsense. She hasn't even been the leader of the EU. She has been a very effective uh, politician. She got re-elected four times. She's been, uh, this year, she will have governed for 16 years. So she is a very, uh, uh, you know, very skilled politician, able to have maneuvered herself in the German political scene. And she has very effectively defended what she and others perceive to be Germany's interest, which is, you know, equated to the interests of the company sector, a champion of German exports, uh, business relations with Russia over oil and gas, 
exports to China, all that sort of thing, been very effective. But she has not given Europe any strategic leadership, and that has now been you know, amply demonstrated in the last week with her two ill-fated uh, diplomatic attempts. The first and more important is her and Macron's uh, suggestion of uh, a resumption of high-level diplomacy between the EU and Russia. And that was rejected by seven member states, uh, including the Baltic states and Poland, the, who, are, who are objecting, who see a Franco-German uh, attempt to go over their interest in relations with Russia. And the second one is the extraordinary attempt to get British tourists banned from Europe, from Europe this summer, uh, when she uh, recommended that the whole of the EU follows Germany's example and impose a mandatory two-week quarantine on any traveler from the UK, irrespective of their vaccination status. Now, the interesting thing is what I've just learned now is that Germany itself has actually not only failed to get the EU to do this, but actually now itself revoked this kind of rule, and uh, it will very soon allow Brits to travel to Germany. So this was an a diplomatic failure that is now being remedied by Germany changing its own rules. So in order for that diplomatic failure not to become too apparent. Hmm. Uh, Mary, do you think it's right to to, to place uh, some of the, the blame for current European disunity at Angela Merkel's feet and, and what might be described as a lack of strategy? Well, I don't dispute that the EU is divided, but I don't see it as divided for the reason that uh, Wolfgang sees it as divided. I think the division is largely explained by the British and by the UK being such fanatical supporters of EU enlargement and its enlargement which has produced these two Europes, largely old Europe and new Europe, and new Europe indeed along the lines that uh, that, that wolfgang was uh, w- w- was drawing but those countries have very different preoccupations um from the ones that the uh, from the ones that the original core europeans had um and the uk supported enlargement very much for its own selfish reasons and now it's upped and left and left the EU with, with, with this huge dividing line down the middle. I didn't want to blame Angela Merkel for the divisions of Europe. I was basically saying that she has not been providing the leadership that she could have, and the divisions of Europe are, are multifaceted. I completely agree with Mary that in, that the way enlargement was done, was it was premature, it was it was too many countries at the same time, the conditionality wasn't, wasn't given, for example, the, even the requirement to join the euro was not enforced. Poland, for example, has uh, never changed its constitution to make it possible for the country to join the euro. That one would have thought should have been an entry requirement, but the EU was so desperate to get everybody in uh, at the same time, and they got 10 countries or so in, that they, they looked the other way. And we have now seen, uh, you know, we've seen Hungary going into a very extreme political direction, which is now, and, and, and also helped by Merkel's party here, you know, we have to, to look at the role Merkel and the CDU, CSU played in Hungary's uh, lurch to the right, and, and, and how long it tolerated the party, Fidesz, which is the party of Viktor Orban, uh, in the European People's Party, which is the, the grouping that Merkel's CDU is belonging to. So when, you know, that, you know, there are multiple reasons. Britain's exit is surely a factor 
of division in Europe. That is very clear. I think the EU should have probably, you know, gone beyond this now. The EU spent too much time, in my view, uh, trying to un undo this. Uh, supporting the second referendum campaign, I thought, was very unwise. The EU should have said from the outset, we regret but respect the decision and let's get on with this. But that didn't happen. Just as it didn't happen in the UK, Brexit has basically is still a debating point. People are still screaming about it on both sides. And that's unfortunately still the case in Brussels too. So that, that uh, even that division is not being healed when uh, both sides actually have an interest in, in that happening. Well, um, Mary, Wolfgang mentioned uh, Orban just, just now, and as well as the, the tension over this proposed summit, which has already been mentioned, we've also seen in the last few days what Macron has called a cultural battle uh, over LGBT rights, as in the, the majority of member states versus Hungary and, and Poland. And are you worried about the EU descending into factionalism? And do you think, are you worried that that might get worse once Merkel's gone? I'm not sure whether it would get worse once Merkel has gone, because I tend to agree with uh, Wolfgang on one point, which is that um, Merkel has not shown a huge amount of European leadership. To an extent, um, and just, just by her very character, she doesn't seem a natural leader. She seems a very suitable leader for Germany in that she is quite self-effacing, that she has made a point really of trying to, trying to make Germany a member of the club rather than an obvious leader of the club. And as she's been more successful as a coalition leader in Germany than she was on the one occasion when she almost won an election outright and had the partner of her choice in the FDP, and that was the least successful of her coalitions. I think she's she, she's a natural sort of um, bridge builder, consensus builder, and uh, never at any stage has she shown herself to be a particularly forceful leader as such. To the extent that Europe sort of looked to her for leadership, she, she sort of had it thrust upon her. But she never, I mean, I, I don't think she ever really, uh, really took it up. Um, I also wonder whether the um, whether although the Europe she leaves um, looks very divided, and I agree that it's divided, but I wonder whether those divisions might actually not soften. Um, that as the eastern part of Europe becomes, um, as it were, more used to being in in the European Union, um, that it becomes more like the other part but also that the, the departure of the UK will actually have, in the longer term, a positive effect on the European Union, in that it takes away a big dissenter and a big fermenter of division. Um, it was a country that, that Hungary, for instance, could look to for support in wanting a looser union, where, where, where national sovereignty was, you know, as they interpreted, was uppermost. Well, Wolfgang, would you agree with that? I mean, you say in your piece that you worry about uh, or you believe there's going to be a, a, a growing Euroscepticism in Europe. But it sounds like, unless I've got you wrong here, Mary, it sounds like you're, you, you think that actually a lot of current disagreements will get ironed out as, the, as Eastern Europe is part of the EU for longer. 
Yes, and also the fact that um, the EU held together fantastically in the negotiations over Brexit. I mean, I think there was a lot of um, feeling in London that that Europe would split and that they could play off one side against each other against another, and that didn't happen. Mm. So, Wolfgang, would you explain what you think, as you say in your piece? Will you, will you explain the, uh, the the growing Euroscepticism uh, in Europe as you see it? Yeah, the Euroscepticism that I see is a very different kind from the one we had. It's not nationalism. We get sort of some of the nationalism, like, you know, what you see in Hungary. But generally, that is not the big threat to the EU. The bigger threat is the EU not delivering on its grand promises. And, uh, for example, in the era of climate change, we've seen this, um, you know, the EU is saying that, you know, this EU portrays itself as a leader in climate change, has for a period co-opted the Green Movement to it. And now the Green Movement is discovering that the climate targets set by the EU, especially this climate, the spending targets, are fake. There are, there's a sort of so-called taxonomy of, of green spending where a spending an investment is, is characterized as 40% is uh, uh, um, green, even if it's only 5 or 10%. And this is always a sort of a rounding practice. It's kind of technical, but the way this, 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 these, the, this taxonomy is applied means that the EU is, you know, says it's spending more on, on, on investment, on, on green investment when it is. We're seeing Germany, depending on the outcome of this election, will roll back on climate targets quite dramatically. The, the CDU is not, not particularly interested in this. That depends very much on the, on, the, on the question of whether the Green Party can win this election or become a, a coalition partner. And there are, you know, increasing number of people in the green movement who are saying this is just not the EU is not not our friend. They are they are saying they're making pretenses, but they're not delivering. So I see the big opposition for, for the uh, for the next generation not coming uh, in the you know it, it won't be a repeat of what happened again. There won't be another Brexit. Uh, what will happen is that a that a young, that especially the younger generation will become increasingly disillusioned over an EU that is not effective, that is not defending human rights abroad, that is basically coddling dictators, prioritizing export over human, human rights. That's the kind of thing we, 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 are, we are seeing increasingly. So it's sort of a principled opposition, uh, a moral opposition, rather than a sort of the kind of you know, the, what we've seen here in the UK. And Mary, finally, do, would you agree with that vision that Wolfgang has uh, painted for us there? I think I would question um, Wolfgang's rather um, flattering view of the younger generation, actually. <laughs> I just wonder whether um, they will be quite so high-minded as to put those sort of human rights considerations, a sharing economy, for instance, on a global level, above considerations, maybe national considerations, which might indeed um, lead to more questions about the survival of Europe or even above wider global aspirations. I think nationalism remains, um, or nationalism, patriotism, sense of nationhood remains quite a strong force. But I think if I, if I saw the European Union weakening, I would see it more in terms of the loss of the, the, the post-war mentality that brought the original um, European concept into being, that maybe, you know, 70, 80 years on, the sort of idealism that gave rise to it and still underpins a lot of its existence, including in the east of Europe, that that may indeed fade away. I sort of hope it won't, but maybe it will do. Wolfgang and Mary, thank you very much.
And finally, as many people fled cities to the countryside during the pandemic, can a case still be made for urban life? Ascender Max Tomgrayen writes in the magazine that she is sick of her country friends feeling sorry for her for living in London. She joins me with former London resident Rory Sutherland, the Spectator's Wikiman columnist. Ascender, in your article you say there is a pervading sense of pity under which Londoners cower, and that this has been particularly acute during the pandemic. Why is this, do you think? Well, I, I think that it has become particularly bad during the pandemic. I suppose maybe it, we've had the two most glorious springs ever, rainy winter followed by the, a burdening of nature, and never has the sort of profusion of photographs of heaven heavenly gardens and acres on Instagram been more painful for us Londoners in a way. And when I told people I have actually spent the whole of last year in living in London, long faces tend to come my way. How could you? How could you be cooped up in that little house of yours? It's so green here and, and London is not green and I just have to learn to feel this pity and I've just had enough of it. Thank you, no more pity because I love the countryside and I just happen to have chosen to live in this glorious city. And Rory, you once wrote for The Spectator that leaving London is a bit like acquiring a shed. You only realise how good it is once you do it. Do you, are you one of the people that Ascender describes, do you think? I mean, did you pity your, your uh, friends in London during the pandemic? I'm going to meet uh, Ascender halfway here because I think uh, there is a large amount of what is called in psychology, I think it's called uh, adaptive preference formation. And I think it applies both to people who live in the city and people who live in the countryside, which is that circumstances force them to live in one or the other. And they go around then with a large amount of confirmation bias, assembling reasons for why something that's often been imposed on them, either by their employer or indeed by, for example, having children and being forced to move out uh, in order to find sizable accommodation, what they do is they make a virtue of necessity. And country people will tend to go on and on and on and on about you know, why it's better to live in the country. Uh, city people, sometimes I think sincerely and sometimes, to be honest, perhaps less than ingenuously, uh, will always go on about, you know, it's so vibrant, it's so happening, I can buy a kumquat at two o'clock in the morning. And they will assemble the case that effectively supports circumstances which they've never in fact chosen and so I, I think there's a large amount of dishonesty on both sides I also think there's a false dichotomy by the way in that nobody suggests necessarily that if you leave London you have to move to the outer Hebrides or Cornwall it's perfectly possible for people who live in Etchingham as you do or Sevenoaks as I do to travel into London uh, as and when we feel like it it's simply that the impetus to do so is a lot less than it was three years ago and I've surprised myself, really, in, some, in the case that I've been into London five or six times in the past year, I've surprised myself by how little I miss, I have to say. I used to go in four days a week at least because of work. I've now been in seven times in the course of 12 months. And the things I really, really miss are surprisingly few. Because you're not looking, living in London, you're not then having to be in London and discover the greenness of London. That's what worries me. If I didn't live here, I would no longer wander along the River Wandle, the River Lee, the River Thames, all those things you do if you're actually living here. If you live near the River Lee, you're quite lucky. I would say that Londoners have a remarkably low uh, standard of countryside in that they get wildly excited about Hyde Park. Now, now, trust me, OK, I grew up in the Wye Valley and 
if you grew up in the Wye Valley, Hyde Park, you'd describe as them bloody trees. Okay, <laughs> it is not that exciting. Uh, except that it's in the middle of London. Uh, but if you've got human, if you love human interest, I found a river walk by the Rye Valley. You just might see a kingfisher. A river walk in London. You'll see the backs of other people's houses, how they do their back garden, the trampoline, the wisteria, the open window. That's why I love it. But it's got the mixture of town and country. Um, to be honest, I mean the strangest thing that never happens is you never hear anybody making the case for suburbia and. In many ways, you know, I would be very happy to write an article on why the future is like Bromley, in the sense that if you live in Bromley, you can get to the countryside very, very easily. And also, by some strange hole in the space-time continuum, you can get a train from Bromley south to Victoria in 15 minutes. And do you pity, um, do you pity, do you pity me for living in, in London, really? No, um, uh, it, it's, um, uh, if it is a sincere choice, uh, which obviously it is in your case, because you could have escaped. As a journalist, of course, you could have escaped many years ago. Perhaps. I don't know what your the rest of your family do. No, no, no. I think in many people, and particularly among the young, it's a genuine choice. What does seem to happen to me a little bit is that there's an element of trap in that nowadays you're 15,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 pounds in debt, student debt. In order to validate your degree, you have to get a London-y kind of job. You end up living in London, which in your 20s you probably like because young people obviously access to dating. I'm completely happy to believe that um, Tinder is rather better in London than it is in Bromley or Cornwall, for example. And there are huge advantages to being in a high-density place when you're younger. The only thing is I was forced out by having twins. I think if we had one child at a time, I would have stuck it out for child number one. Whereas I've brought up, I've thought, up uh, three children in a small London cottage and they're delighted to be here. So, yeah, um, but there's no, no, they are. I, that's where, yeah, we, are, we do protest. Humans do protest too much, don't we? That we're loving what we, we, we love our own decision and we have to comfort ourselves. No, so this is adaptive preference mm, formation. Yeah, I, I always argue there isn't really a Scottish independence movement that lots of Scots just like being angry and they've reverse engineered a whole political case uh, to support their favoured emotional state. You know, and I think a lot of that goes on. Technology, okay has made the rustic deficit much, much less than it used to be. I do agree, I do agree. And that's partly why I'm sticking up for this city of ours, because okay. there's, such, there's, yeah. even more, there's even more temptation to move out now. We're being lured out, and this poor, lovely city of ours is looking down in the dumps, uh, and all the people that you need to be around if you live in a city are, are spending more and more time away from it. And, and, and I, this is slightly... I said I, my article says I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a patriotic for my city. It's a mini-patriotism, and I just feel it needs to be stuck up for it. Otherwise, we'll all, you'll all be in restroom. And, and Seven Oaks, and no one will be in this and city. And Bromley. <laughs> <laughs> Bromley's the future. I mean, fairness, Darwin knew what he was doing, didn't he? Um, and Churchill. But, no, I mean, the interesting thing is, it, first of all, it, you know, I think quite a lot of people overcompensate. And one thing I don't recommend is people who decide to move out of London and then move just too far away. I think there's greater consideration needs to be given now to the quality of life in smaller cities. You know, I, was, I spent three days in Newcastle two weeks ago, and I was aghast at how good it was. I mean, both how beautiful it was, but also the general quality of life. Uh, and the, the sophistication deficit has gone, largely. Uh, it's very interesting. When I went into London, what are the things I missed? And it's very interesting. OK, the kebabs on the Edgware Road. I don't know if you're a devotee of Beirut Express or those particularly fine Schwabe places that you get renouche juice. OK, so Lebanese food. Dishoom, the fantastic Indian restaurant chain, which has yet to make it to um, suburbia. There's a cocktail at the club at the Ivy called the Hammer of God, which is a beer whiskey cocktail, which you can't get anywhere else. 
But I must admit, when I'd gone into London and bought those things and, you know, met up with a few friends once or twice, I was pretty much at a loss for an argument for what I could do in London that I couldn't do either online or locally. It just becomes a thing you go up to town for. And of course, it, it doesn't, it's not, not as good as it would be if you were actually living there and also go bumping into your neighbours on the way and all those things that come from actually living in a place. So, Rory, you've given some examples of things that you do miss now you don't live in London. Ascender, is there other things that would convince you to leave London, do you think? Well, I mean, I, that's the question. I mean, I do. I, I used to flick through the front page of the Country Life as a child every single week and drool over the houses that one could have with a, in a big old... Never had a raspberry patch or a trampoline or a ping-pong table. <laughs> um, but on balance, I've decided to stay here. But please may it become, remain a city where one can, at a whim, go to Wigmore Hall, which you can't do at the moment, at a whim, go to the National Gallery, where you can't, which you can't do. So London needs to bounce back to life where, to being a place where spontaneity is possible. I think we could all agree on that. Ascenda uh, and Rory, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed? You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 if you go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week.